0: Hey, everyone, Chase here. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to tell you about a campaign for an awesome creator-owned book that's going on right now over at Zoop. Wilder John is the story of a savage journey into the heart of a man driven mad by love, by hate, by power, as he is hounded by hordes of relentless enemies who will stop at nothing to proclaim what John has stolen. This is a real passion project for writer-artist Nick Patera, as he's drawing inspiration from creators he loves, such as Frank Quietly, Jeff Darrow, and Mobius, among others. The book is also a deeply personal tale for Nick. He conceived a lot of the character and stories while his family was dealing with health challenges for his youngest daughter. Just like real life, the story is much more complicated than it might seem at first glance, and the axe-wielding barbarian at the heart of the story may be much, much more relatable than your average bloodthirsty warrior. The project's Already fully funded, so go join the campaign and you're guaranteed to get this full color oversized hardcover edition. Just visit zoop.gg to check it out. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Chase. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for May the 4th, 2022. Yes, I know it's coming out a bit late. Uh, apologies to everybody for that. Uh, I've been traveling a ton for my day job, and it's making it really difficult to keep any kind of regular schedule. I also want to mention, if you're looking for the Spawn Daily... We just had got it started back up and recorded a few episodes. And then unfortunately, uh, Blake had somebody in his family suffer uh, an accident and he's going to be unable to do it for the foreseeable future. So I was kind of looking around trying to find somebody else who could join me. Doesn't look like I'm going to be successful in that. So I guess I'm going to run solo and those should be coming back later this week as well. I'm going to try to record them from my hotel room. Uh, once I get to Florida this week, which will be followed by uh, a trip to New York. So flying from Phoenix to Florida then at the end of the week from Florida to New York, and then from New York back to Phoenix. And hopefully by the end of next week or the week after next, somewhere around May 20th, I should be done traveling. So hopefully that's going to be the case. And, um, we we'll be able to stay on a, a somewhat regular schedule. So I debated whether I should put this out or not, being that it's so late, but ultimately these books this week were really, really good. So I wanted to, to talk about them. I'll be pretty brief, even though uh, this is coming out late, I'm still not going to do spoilers, uh, just in the spirit of keeping things consistent. So first book I'm going to talk about is Ben Reilly Spider-Man number four. It's from writer J.M. Dematteis. Uh, David Baldone handles the art. Israel Silva on colors. Joe Carmine does the letters. We know recently that uh, as sort of a cliffhanger at the end of last issue, we found out that the person that's been behind all of the stuff that's been going on, all these different villains that uh, classic Spider-Man villains that Ben riley has been going up against is none other than Spider-Side. So we were wondering, well, how could it be Craven? How can it be this person or that person? Because they're all locked up. You know, how can they be in two places at once or whatnot? Well, come to find out, yeah, it's spider-side. He's uh manipulated his uh his body. He's basically become a shape changer. I mean, he always had some aspects of that, but he's learned how to manipulate his body even more. That you know, he's an unstable clone of Peter Parker. So Demetheus is really leaning into this idea of, of identity and choosing your own fate and not being beholden to the past, which we talked a lot about uh, when he was on the show. So uh, I appreciate that Peter is not Ben and Ben is not Spider Side. He's not Kane. You know, they, they, these really are very different people, despite the fact that they all come from Peter Parker's DNA. So it is fascinating, especially when you think about Demetrius' favorite book uh, from Dosievsky, uh, Brothers Karamazov, how, you know, product of the same father, but yet also very, very different. And that's really what we're talking about here when we talk about these, these you know, the Parker brothers, uh, you know, as an analog for that. And you're talking Peter, you're talking Ben, you're talking Kane, you're talking Spider Side. And uh, I think j m um, talked about it when he was on the show about how you know spider side more than any of the others, obviously much more than peter um because it probably goes in terms of characterization and and having their 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 personalities or who they are be explored in books obviously peter 's number one he 's been in the most ben 's going to be second then kane spider side comes in you know a distant last so I love that he 's exploring it here and I love that Spider-Side is is choosing to sort of reject what Ben – what he perceives to be what Ben would choose uh, in terms of he, – he looks at Ben and says, yeah, you want Peter's life. And Ben is, comes to the realization, well, that's actually not what I want, right? I mean Ben is his own person. Obviously, this this is going back. This is taking place in, in the past when uh, Peter and Mary Jane were off in the Pacific Northwest. Supposedly about to have their baby, but at that time that's not what Ben wanted. So I I do enjoy this. I also think that it's interesting to put this in context of what just happened in the uh, the Beyond storyline in Spider Man with Ben Riley, which I you know I had talked to James about that just real briefly, and he he mentioned that yeah he he was aware that Ben was in that storyline, but wasn't aware you know, of what direction it was heading and, and it didn't really play into, didn't consider it when he was making this story. But based on what happened there, and I won't spoil it, I kind of wonder if it does in some way lessen the impact of, of what Ben is saying here. Uh, but ultimately I think the story is going to stand on its own and, uh, I do enjoy what's happening. It is very much a trip down memory lane to that Spider-Man clone saga. That was such a big part of, uh, who spider-man was in the 90s so if you enjoyed it you'll enjoy this and uh, i am curious next time jm comes on the show probably have to talk about where ben ended up maybe by that time we'll have seen ben show up again with what happened to him in uh, in the beyond storyline and if you don't know you probably should go read that uh beyond storyline because it was pretty solid uh, okay, up next, I have a Valiant book, actually. I haven't recovered a Valiant book in a long time, but this one's uh, very much deserving of, of some attention. So it's The Return of Archer and Armstrong. Uh, we have issue number one here, and it's written by Steve Fox. Marcio Fiorito does the art. Colors are by Alex Guimareas. Hassan Atman Elhau does the letters. I really, really enjoyed this. I'm not the biggest Archer and Armstrong guy uh, when it comes to Valiant characters, they're kind of lower on my list. But this Archer and Armstrong forever story really, Fox what he does really, really well. First of all, he gives us some great action. And I thought the dialogue flowed really well, uh, especially with Archer, who was raised, you know, fundament- fundamentalist and very religious. The dialogue can be hokey and kind of clunky at times. He avoids that trap. He He does a good job of in the scripting, in the vocabulary for Archer, kind of making him seem goody-goody, making him seem a little square, but not making it to the point where it's cringy. Uh, so I really appreciated that. The other thing that he does very, very well is he highlights the relationship between Archer and Armstrong and how much they really care about each other without putting that in your face, right? It's in there subtextually, maybe even a little more so on Archer's part, a little more... Uh, obvious on Archer's part how much he, he cares about Armstrong, but uh, it's a fundamental part of the story. It's a fundamental part of who these characters are, and he does a good job of uh, of making that work. He also does a good job of throwing in little exposition boxes here and there to give context to who these characters are in case somebody is reading uh, Archer and Armstrong's book for the first time. But it still works, and it's still fun for longtime readers as well, because he injects humor into it. So, for example, when Archer's doing a specific, uh, martial arts move. He'll explain, he'll name what the move is and explain a little bit about it. And he he gets uh, a little humorous at times. So yeah, it, it definitely still has the humor you would expect from an Archer and Armstrong book, but it's very subtle. It's not in in your face or over the top. And I, I really enjoyed this. Um, this might be my favorite Archer and Armstrong book I've, I've read. I can't, I can't certainly recently. Uh, I can't remember a book I enjoyed uh, as much as this one in a long, long time. And uh, the art by Marcio Fiorito, not familiar with his art at all, but he does a fantastic job, especially on some of these multi-exposure panels where we see Archer kind of flipping through the air or doing a martial arts move or whatnot. So that all works really, really well. Uh, there's good detail in the art. The panels tend to be a, a little large um, and, The book is paced relatively quickly, so it does make for a bit of a short read. I would not have minded uh, because I don't think Fiorito's art is so detailed that you couldn't uh, shrink it down a little bit and fit another panel or two per page, which would give a bigger story and feel like it wasn't so quickly paced. Because it's not like there's so much action here that you should feel like it's over in a blink. But it does go really, really fast. And don't get me wrong. There's a ton of action. But I think there's room for a bigger story here, for a longer story. It just felt a little bit short to me. But the seeds are planted for a very good story. I did enjoy it. And as I said, it's been a while since I've picked up a Valiant book. But I'm glad I picked up this one because it was really, really good. Uh, Okay, up next is Avengers Forever. We are up to issue number five. This is from writer Jason Aaron. We have Jim Tao on pencils or art, rather. Guru EFX handles the colors. Corey Petit on letters. This is 100% a Dr. Doom issue. It's the multiversal version of Dr. Doom who has kind of eschewed uh, technology and science and whatnot for uh, sorcery. He's his world sorcerer supreme. And it's great to get some context into who the leader of these Multiversal masters of evil are or is because this is a doom that I mean, it's so hard to transcend who doom is. Like, doom is doom no matter who he is, he's arrogant, you know, no matter which uh which multiverse he comes from, which Marvel uh reality, or however you want to put it. He's going to be arrogant, he's going to be brilliant, he's going to be egotistical. And so, how do you differentiate what makes this doom that's? the head of the most multiversal Masters of Evil, what puts him even above the other Dooms to make him the most powerful Doom, the most dangerous Doom. Uh, and Jason Aaron gives a, a, a good explanation of that. And it still feels very quintessentially Doom. It is a little weird to see him sort of um, have the other Dooms kowtow to him. It's it's weird to see you know, any version of Doom accept a subservient role. But when you see the ruthlessness and the intelligence and the planning of this multiversal master doom, you kind of get it. You kind of understand. So uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm sure Jason Aaron is enjoying playing with the, uh, the Marvel multiverse, which again, I still go back to the irony of so many Marvel zombies complaining to DC fans about, Oh, Marvel doesn't need multiple realities and all these different earths or whatever that, you know, that's a weakness of your story. And now all of a sudden Marvel's leading into it, the Loki show and variants and whatnot. And now these Marvel fanboys are going crazy. and like, wait a minute, you, you're saying it was a bad thing to do before and now it's great because Marvel's doing it. So I, I don't know. I just, I find that to be, um, ironic in a, in a lot of ways. So anyway, uh, the art by Jim Tao is also done, uh, very, very well. There's a lot of moody coloring. There's, uh, some great action scenes and obviously Jim Tao gets to cut loose, giving us these different versions of doom, whether it's a, a man thing version of doom or, uh, uh, ego the living planet version of doom or, or whatever. Uh, it's, it's a fun book and, uh, interesting that Aaron, I think there's supposed to be a 12 issue. This is Avengers forever. Interesting that Aaron felt that he had the, the room to give us a whole issue focused on, uh, on Doom, so uh, I thought that was was pretty cool. Uh, all right, up next, it's a new series from Aftershock. It's called Dogs of London. What an incredible start to the series! It's written by Peter Milligan. The art is by Articida. Valentina Bianconi does the coloring. Rob Steen on letters. So this starts off as just uh, you know, like a Guy Ritchie gangster film with. Some flashbacks to these these different gangs of London and their turf wars and how things were back in the mid '60s when you know it was a different time. There weren't closed circuit TVs and your face wasn't everywhere if you were a, a criminal and whatnot. And uh, just you know, a, a less complicated time is how one of the characters in the in the book puts it. And but then we jump forward in time. Where things are much, much different. And some of these criminals who got their start doing less than uh, stellar things are now more legitimate. They're more, uh, you know, high society in a lot of ways. Uh, but something happens that looks like it might bring their past back to haunt them in ways that obviously they wouldn't care for. But there also seems to be something supernatural going on that may be about to trip them up so more than meets the eye we don't get that until the very last page so i can't wait to see how that all plays out from peter milligan because he does supernatural and horror and that sort of thing really really well you know he's not one to just write a straight crime noir comic so uh, i appreciate that and i thought this was a a really really great start um the other thing that i'll mention about it is in the back there are these handwritten notes of um, a hint of some sort of program that some of the characters were a part of. And maybe it helps to explain kind of the little bit of the cliffhanger thing that we get right at the end. Um, But I guess we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. But what's funny about these notes is just, again, remember they were written in 1966, but just how sort of illogical and prejudicial and, um just ill-informed these notes are, you know, supposedly they're written by somebody who is uh, a professor of some like psychology or something like that. I'm I'm guessing. Um and he's like, oh, you know, this guy's got creases in his armpits, so that means he's going to be a criminal or what I mean, it's just it's pure nonsense. Um and it, it makes for sort of some dark humor in a lot of ways. But uh again, I recommend it. I thought the art by uh, Artisita was done really, really well. Very realistic, but um, some great colored backgrounds to really make the art pop. Uh, he captures the the feel of London and that sort of uh, mid '60s vibe very, very well. And uh, everything looks just a little bit sleeker and cleaner when we move up to to present time. So, uh, I I really enjoyed this first issue. And uh, if not for one other book that really blew me away, this would have been my, my book of the week. So uh, hats off to uh, Aftershock once again for a fantastic start to a series. Peter Milligan, Artesita, Dogs of London. Check it out. Uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, a one-shot. It's giant size X-Men Thunderbird. And we know that uh, the original Thunderbird was just uh, resurrected. I'm surprised they didn't bring him back sooner. The, the five didn't bring him back sooner. You know, the, he was the first new X-Man that, uh, that was killed on their first mission, actually. Once Xavier, uh, you know, recruited a new team. So again, I'm just surprised they didn't bring him back uh, sooner, but he's back now. And this is a great one shot to sort of introduce him and uh, in the current state of, of the x Men. both to introduce him to new readers and to introduce him to, hey, this is the way the world is now. So it's written by Steve Orlando and Nyla Rose. David Cutler does the pencils. Jose Marzan Jr. with Roberto Apogi does the inks. And Irma Navilla does the colors with Travis Lanham on the letters. So again, I thought it was a pretty solid story. It really gives a lot of context to who John Proudstart was and wants to be. I don't I don't say that he is because he's very much in a transitional period right now, you know he knows he's been gone for for decades and he's really just trying to figure out his place in the world, even though he was brought back he was resurrected on Kokoa. he certainly doesn't think of that as home. you know he talks about going home when he goes back to uh, his reservation. he realizes that a lot of uh, the other members of his uh, indigenous tribe are are being exploited, and he does what he can to Uh, to stop that and reconnects with his grandmother and then has the opportunity to introduce his brother, uh, Jimmy, who's the second Thunderbird or James Proudstar. He has a chance to introduce James to his grandmother, to their grandmother. um, Somebody that, that James had never even really gotten a chance to meet. So going to be curious to see just who Proudstar is as a character. I mean, he didn't get fleshed out a lot by Chris Claremont back in the day because, again, he he died so quickly. He came across as sort of bullheaded and um, I don't want to say egotistical, but I mean, even when Xavier was telling him, "Hey, get off the plane! The plane's going to explode. Get off the plane!" and No, I kn- I know better. Um, so maybe closed-minded uh, due to you know the prejudices that he had faced as a, a Native American. So. Uh, there, I won't go so far as to say he's a blank slate. I mean, you want to, um, still. I don't want to say honor, but but you want you want John Proudstar to still be recognizable as as John Proudstar in terms of yeah, he was really bullheaded and close-minded and and didn't listen. But keep in mind, he also was very very young at that time and. You know, it's not like he's been living a life, but he is back and he, he does seem to to take some uh, some notice of the things that his grandmother's telling him, the way the world is now. So I think he's a character that has a lot of potential. And it's, it's such a strange place for a character to be, a character that's what, 40, 50 years old to, to almost be a blank slate at this point. So yeah, that that's pretty interesting. I appreciated the the characterization and the growth in just a single issue we got. Uh, from John Proudstar uh, in the hands of uh, Orlando and uh and uh, Nyla Rose here. Uh the art is not super um detailed, I'll say. Uh it's a little more almost an animation style from David Cutler. Uh there is a ton of action. There's uh plenty of great transitions from panel to panel. Uh Cutler doesn't tend to break panels much, which I, I think that would actually help his art look a little more dynamic, especially because there are some really great action scenes. Um, so I, I think there is room for improvement, but overall, some really strong storytelling from, uh, from David Cutler uh, visually. So check it out if you are an X-Men fan. Uh, all right. Up next, we finally reach the end of the Korvac story that Christopher Cantwell has been telling. In Iron Man number nineteen, from writer Christopher Cantwell, art is by Kafu, colors by Frank Diarmada, letters by Joe Caramagna. We saw that Korvac uh, was confronting Tony Stark at the end of last issue. They have sort of their final confrontation here, and it doesn't go at all the way you think it would. Well, maybe it does in the terms of like we all sort of expect Tony Stark to win, right? But he doesn't win in the way you might think. You know, he doesn't play the big hero and and find a way to defeat. Corvax that way. Instead, it's a much more emotional victory that that may have led to a more final victory over Corvac. It's very interesting what Cantwell does here, and he also leaves the door open uh, for interpretation on what exactly the final outcome for Corvac is. Can Corvac die? Is he human? Is he not? And where is where is he? Is he going to sh- show up again? Is he dead? Is Has he winked out of existence? Like there's a lot of, of questions left about that. Um, but one thing is for sure is that, as I've said from the beginning, what Christopher Cantwell is doing is he's tearing Tony Stark down to build him up again. And in a way, at the end of last issue where we saw Tony basically um, – like succumb to his dependence on the morphine he's been taking to deal with the the pain of his broken neck. Um, Tony's almost reached his lowest point. And yet even at his lowest point, he's able to uh, address the issue with Korvac in such a way that he comes out on top. I don't think that's spoiling uh, too much to say it that way. Um, and now Tony gets to start the, the buildup of, you know, himself, who who he gets to be, he gets to choose who he gets to be and how he gets to be that person. So um, the teardown by Christopher Cantwell is complete. And uh, I imagine the buildup to get Tony back to a uh, heroic state back to, um, I won't say a recognizable Tony Stark, because I think he's going to be sort of a different Tony Stark than he's ever been before, based on kind of the Robert Downey Jr. portrayal, in the MCU, which has been brought into the comics in a lot of ways. So he's, although he's facing some uh, addiction challenges like he has in the past, he's going to come out of this on the other side different than he's ever been before and hopefully stronger. So uh, I can't really oversell how Christopher Cantwell and Kafu and and the other artists that have filled in now and then, Uh, I can't really overstate how well they've balanced bringing in the classic feel of Tony, especially uh, when Rhodey first got in the armor around the one seventies and Tony eventually hit rock bottom. I think it was that issue 182, where he's sitting in an alley with his back to a wall. And on the wall, it says in the morning, Tony Stark will be sober or dead. Um, To me, that is like just the classic era of, of Tony Stark, you know, not, not just Iron Man, but of Tony Stark and, Cantwell has has captured that feeling so well of Tony being this incredible genius, this incredibly intelligent person, somebody who has heroic tendencies, somebody who has the capability of solving a lot of problems and uh, helping to save the world from various situations and balancing that with his human frailty. Uh, to me, those are my favorite eras of, of Tony where he's not a broken person. He's not a genius. He's both. And you meld those together and it makes Tony more relatable because he's just like the rest of us. you know, He's a flawed, imperfect human being who's trying to do the best he can. And it's really easy to think of Tony as, oh, he's this billionaire industrialist and he's Iron Man and he lives this life of glamour and everything. you know, Who would want to be Tony Stark? Well, that comes with other pressures and other issues, right? Like his addiction issues, his, um, his self-doubt and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, Christopher Campbell didn't shy away from that in tearing Tony down. And so, uh, I really love what he's doing. I know he only has a few issues left on, I think four or five more issues on the book. I think 22 or 23 might be his last issue. Uh, I'm going to be for one, I'm going to be sad to see him go because man, I uh, absolutely love what he's doing. Now, what can I say about the kafu art, man? I mean, it's just so detailed, so gorgeous, especially if Corvac's there in sort of his cosmic form where he's glowing and he has energy crackling off of him, you know, that classic Kirby crackle, um, just gorgeous art, whether it was kafu or Angel Unzeta, uh, just the, the realism, the dynamism, uh of the art, just so beautiful. Uh, again, Iron Man is, is really fine on all, all cylinders for me. One of the best runs on Iron Man in a really, really long time. So, uh, Okay, up next, we have uh, Little Monsters, number three, from writer Jeff Lemire. Dustin Nguyen handles the art and cover. Steve Wan on letters and design. This is just a fun book. Um, you know, it's, it's black and white. There's grayscale. It suits the story. The only color you ever get is red because... Uh, these little monsters, they're, they're called little monsters because they're vampires, right? We learned that uh, you, you suspect it right at the end of the first issue and then second issue. It, uh, it's basically right there for you. Uh, you're told that these are vampires and these, these kids, because vampires don't age, right? These kids have been on their own for decades, if not centuries. And they finally, for the first time, come across uh, a live human at the end of last issue. So what are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of these little monsters, these little vampires feeding on live human beings uh, for the first time? A lot more questions and answers at this point. Uh, But I love that we didn't start off with this situation. We started off the first issue with us getting some idea of of who these characters are as as people, I guess, as, as vampiric people. Again, you don't know they're vampires you know, it's a post-apocalyptic world, you know, they're bored, you know, they've been uh, living the same monotonous existence, you know, day after day, month after month, year after year. And it, it adds some context because even though these characters are very old, they're not necessarily mature, right? There's no wisdom there. There's age, but there's no wisdom because they haven't had anybody to teach them. Uh, they've just had each other and, uh, it's fascinating this juxtaposition against sort of the, the innocence of youth, uh, the freedom they have to do whatever they want, because there are no rules in this world where no adults exist. Juxtapose that against the inherent evil that comes with vampirism and feeding off society and, and whatnot. So, uh, really, really fascinating story here. No idea where Lemire and, uh, and Dustin Nguyen are going, but I can't wait to, to find out. As far as the art goes, you know, Dustin Nguyen, um, I'm much more of a fan of his early work where his art style was much more clean. This doesn't lean completely into the watercolor style that he does sometimes, like um, Little Gotham, but it is a, a little bit more of a, a messy style. Um, I can't even tell. I don't think he's doing watercolor for the background either, because, again, this is all in black and white, so maybe he's digitally painting it. Uh, I'm not sure, but although I'm not the biggest fan of the aesthetic or the style, uh, his storytelling is second to none, especially there's one of the the characters here who is non-binary and doesn't speak, and uh, uh, Rami is their name, and that's always a heavy lift when you're trying to do storytelling with somebody who doesn't speak. Uh, it's more of a challenge, and Dustin Wynn is more than up for it, so uh, I was a little late reading the first couple issues. This issue three came out. I'm like, oh my God, this thing's been out three months and I still haven't read it. I'm a huge Jeff Lemire fan, so I got caught up. I'm glad I did. It's a really fantastic story. Um, interesting that uh, Lemire and, and Dustin Wynn are doing another book starring uh, some kids, too, because uh, most recently they did uh, Descender and Ascender from Image, so i um, curious what it is about their dynamic that makes them like to use uh you know younger protagonists in their in their stories so i guess we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out but i do recommend little monsters uh okay up next we have metal society number one written by zach kaplan art is by guillermo balbi uh colors by marco lesko troy's by uh, letters rather by troy petrie so i talked to zach about this uh a few episodes ago when he was on the show. So I encourage you to, if you want more detail to go and listen to that, basically this is a world where humans have screwed everything up to the point where the earth is uninhabitable robots gain sentience and kind of take the planet over and don't necessarily clean it up, but you know, they establish their own society to the point where they're super advanced and they've, They feel like they have inherited the earth from people who didn't deserve it and didn't respect it. And they're advanced far enough to the point where now they grow their own humans. Uh, Okay, well, now that we're in charge, we're going to, you know, create humans in a lab sort of just to prove that they can, you know, which is in a way a very human thing to do. Why do you climb that mountain? Well, because it's there. Um, And so they create them just to kind of, It's almost like a a vanity project in a way, just, again, to prove that they can, to to prove that they uh, are that advanced. And then they don't know what to do with these humans they've created, so they make them do the jobs that the robots themselves don't want to. So, uh, again, very human in that way, where somebody in power is sort of persecuting a, a lower class and making them do the things that they don't want to do, you know, like be garbage men or... Uh, cooks or you know whatever groomsmen um and by i don't mean they make them be in weddings i mean they make them take care of horses uh so the society has advanced to this the point where there is now a a human rebellion that is um in its early stages and this is a story of rosa who's a part of that rebellion and uh, a robot champion who are basically fighting in a ufc type gladiatorial fight to determine who gets to decide the fate of, uh, of society going forward. So there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the gist of it. Uh, I thought the first issue was fantastic. There's a lot of flashback. The, the framing sequence is that fight that fight's about to start. Meanwhile, we're getting plenty of flashbacks into Rosa and who she is. So again, if you want more detail, go listen to the interview I did with Zach. The, um, the issue itself is fantastic. The art by Gil Haramay Balbe is, is wonderful. The colors by Martin Lesko are also fantastic. So uh, really, really fun, awesome book from Image and Top Cow. You know Zach Kaplan is always one of my number one guys when it comes to writing sci-fi. The guy is just great. So all right. Then next, we have another book from Image. It's A Righteous Thirst for Vengeance, issue number seven. This is from writer Rick Remender, the artist by co-creator Andre Lima Arajo, Chris O'Halloran on colors, Russ Wooten on letters. So we, we've talked a lot about this book. We've covered every issue, talking about how little dialogue there is and how um, Andre Lima is is just a fantastic visual storyteller and uh, Rick Remender is sort of directing him on what to put in the panels and he's knocking it out of the park when it comes to the, the uh, storytelling because, yes, this book has very few words. Uh, it has gotten a little more dialogue and scripting as we've gone on But it's clear that in terms of scope, this is never going to be like a really big story, right, with like worldly global implications. This is an intimate story about a guy who's gotten in over his head, um, feels guilty about the way things have played out, and uh, is doing the best he can in circumstances that he's never been in before. Uh, to, to do what he feels is right. So for that reason, it's a very emotional book because it is such a, it is so hyper-focused on Sonny and Xavier, who's the, the woman that he was trying to save uh, her son. And you know, obviously she died a couple of issues ago and Sonny is taken upon himself to keep Xavier safe in his mind. And the way it comes across to me is Xavier has sort of taken his mother's place in, in Sonny's mind as somebody he needs to protect. Uh, we're still not hundred percent sure exactly why she was uh, marked for death or had a hit put out on her and whatnot. So there's still some mystery to be solved, but this is great action and crime noir. And again, it's, it's so impactful because it is so quiet and it is so intimate and it is so uh, emotional. Uh, and I really cannot overstate what an amazing storyteller visually Andre Lima is. I mean, this is just fantastic. It ends on a, a really brutal cliffhanger where you get to that last panel and then you turn the page and it's a bunch of um, text, and you're like, no, I want to know what's happening next. I want to know what that next page is because uh, it, Remender and, and Lima do a uh, fantastic job of just setting it up and making it uh, making it very compelling you can't wait to find out what happens next. So if you haven't read any of them, I I really recommend go pick up the first trade and pick up this issue number seven that starts second arc. You won't be disappointed. It's fantastic. Uh, Okay, up next, Star Wars book. It's Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's written by Christopher Cantwell. Art is by Ario Anandito. Colors by Carlos Lopez. Letters by Joe uh, Caramania. It's hard for me to talk about this book, based on what happens because I don't want to spoil anything, but we get a framing sequence that is in, I'll say present day, um, or I guess it's not even really present day. It's, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi on Tatooine before Luke comes looking for him before R2-D2 and C-3PO land on the planet. Um, But then we get a flashback to much earlier in Obi-Wan's life, uh, an era of Obi-Wan's life that I, I certainly have never seen before. I don't think it's been covered. So it seems like in this in this mini, I think it's five issues, that Christopher Campbell is going to be exploring all different eras of Obi-Wan's life and the things that he's gone through. So based on the strength of this first issue and the themes that he explores, the one that I'll mention specifically being loyalty, which is a fantastic theme uh, and and a theme that is not as... The answers aren't as obvious as you think. Like, yes, Obi-Wan is a very loyal person, but is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the answer to that isn't as simple as you would, as like I said, isn't as simple as you would think. Um, but Cantwell does a fantastic job of exploring that, uh, and especially in Obi-Wan's youth. And so I can't wait to see where this goes next. I know Cantwell's a big Star Wars fan, so I definitely trust him. He's a fantastic writer. Uh, and this is the first new star Wars book that I've picked up in a while. Um, and based on the strength of the first issue, uh, won't be going anywhere anytime soon. So uh, I've been wanting to get caught up on star Wars and this was a great excuse to, uh, jump in and I'll probably expand out on some, some star Wars stuff and be talking about some more star Wars books coming up. So, uh, I definitely recommend it. I know it did really, really well. I think a lot of stores actually ran out. It doesn't hurt that it came out on May the 4th, right? Star Wars day, um, and being a new series, a new number one, I'm sure a lot of people were like, oh, what, you have Star Wars comics? Oh, a brand new one started today? Oh, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi? I mean, who doesn't love Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? So uh, congrats to Christopher on a very uh, successful launch. Okay, up next we have uh, Maestro World War M number three. This is from writer Peter David. Herman Peralta is the artist. Jesus Arbatov does the colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Uh, we saw last issue that... Um, the abomination and Namor and doom are trying to team up to take out the maestro. Again, we know that's not going to happen. This is sort of one of those situations like the Titanic movie, you know, the boat sinks at the uh, sinks at the end, you know, maestro is going to gain control of the, what's left of the earth in the end, because that's what, where he's at when future imperfect happens. But this is more about the journey. How does he get there? How did he defeat his foes? Um, I still have a little bit of problem with Bruce Banner uh, turning evil like this, but you know that that ship has sailed. In terms of a villain, Maestro is definitely a uh, a good one. You know he, he's got all the the hallmarks uh, of what makes a great villain. He's very smart. He's very Machiavellian, and obviously he's very very powerful. So seeing a classic um, Hulk Abomination fight here is a lot of fun. And this sets up uh, an even bigger fight in issue number four. So uh, the Herman Peralta art is fantastic. Seeing these characters, you know, that you're familiar with, like Namor and Toro and Abomination and Doctor Doom and all of them in in the end times where Maestro's in control is very, very interesting. It gives a lot more context to that future imperfect storyline. So uh, I'm definitely a fan of uh, of these, but I, I think this is the last one, uh, I think this is the second and, and final um, the series of these, uh, or might, this might be the third, I think this is the third, this is the third and final, so, uh, anyway, up next we have Radiant Black, we're up to issue number 14, tons of creators on this one, writers Kyle Higgins, Penciler, Marcelo Costo, and Eduardo Ferragato, inks are by Jonas Trinidad, colors by Igor Monti, Color Assists by Sabrina Del Grosso and then Letters Are By Becca Carey. Uh, so, last issue, we saw Marshall and Nathan. Uh, I won't say they were arguing or fighting, but they're definitely having trouble communicating. You know, uh, Nathan's back from his coma. He's struggling with just acclimating himself back after spending so much time near death. Meanwhile, Marshall's hoping for, uh, you know, somebody to talk to. Like, he needs an ear. <laughs> Uh, shoulder to lean on here, based on the fact that he can't really talk to anybody about the things that he deals with or sees as Radiant Black because you know he can't give away his his secret identity per se. And so, you know, Nathan's the one guy that he can talk to about it. But Nathan struggles because there's a part of Nathan that probably thinks, "Hey, I should still have that power, um, but it almost killed me. Do I want it back?" So it's a complicated. Nathan's feelings about it are complicated. Thus, it makes his relationship with Marshall, which used to be not very complicated, um, you know, high school best friends, and then comes back and, and, uh, and Marshall's never less, left. And Nathan's relationship with him isn't the same. Um, it's almost big brother, little brother in a way, but still very well defined and very easy to understand. And all of a sudden, that relationship's been flipped on its head and it's, it's very complex. And there's a lot more to it with the radiant black power and the fact that Nathan had it first. And yeah, uh, it's clear that Kyle Higgins wants to explore that. It's going to be a a sense of drama. And uh, on top of that, we still have shift and, you know, all the other uh, villains that we've been introduced recently that that seem to have uh, the ability to, um, to charge up armor and weapons and whatnot with, with radiant black energy, Um, and, and what's going on there and, and how Marshall's trying to stay ahead of everything. So there's a lot of plate spinning. And this, uh, this series is, is fantastic. It, it is big and it feels big in terms of scope and what's going on as opposed to something um, like rogue son, which feels much more intimate and, and smaller, not to say that there aren't character moments, not to say that there aren't um, some, some smaller themes here. And and certainly you know relationships that are to be explored, like the relationship between Nathan and Marshall that I've talked about. Um, but there's a lot going on in this world, and I appreciate that. It's clear that Kyle Higgins, the story that he wants to tell, is very ambitious, and this continues to be one of the best superhero comics that's being put out right now. Okay, uh, up next is Book of the Week, both for myself and for Jay. We both uh, really, really enjoyed this book. It's Twig, number one. It's written by Scotty Young, drawn by Kyle Stram. He's, uh, uh, Jean-Francois Bellou does the colors. Nate Picos of Blambot does the letters. Uh, there were about a thousand covers for this. Uh, first of all, let me talk about the art. The art is is gorgeous from Kyle Straham. It's very fanciful. It's very brightly colored. Um and it, it really, uh, which is interesting because John Francois Bellew, who most recently worked with Scotty Young and Jorge Corona on the Me Love in the Dark, where everything was um, was very darkly colored and, you know, it was a horror love story and uh, just fantastic work. And before that was Middle West, which was fanciful and adventuresome, but also had some darker themes. And so it kind of bounced back and forth between really bright colors and some darker colors. And this one, it's almost all bright. It's almost all primary. And it's the story of this little creature named Twig who is going off on a mission, like really got like a bone vibe from it, you know, like an all ages book where um, you can, something you can share with your kids and make a great bedtime story. There's lots of humor. There's lots of weird little creatures, like a little slug-like creature that seems to be like Twig's pet or friend that can like talk to him, but can also glow in the dark. Just little things like that that really make the book fun. Um, lighthearted dialogue from uh, from Scotty Young, which I get, I'll give him a lot of credit for. Um, you know, he's really been working hard on his craft as, uh, as a creator, as a writer. And so uh, I, I, I can't say enough about what great dialogue this is. Again, he, he gets across his point, but keeps it all ages, keeps it fun, and uh, I think it just works on, on pretty much all levels, uh, which, again, is why I got my my book of the week. I'm not sure why Jay picked it, but uh, it's fantastic. Gets my highest recommendation. I know there were a ton of covers. You don't have to get them all, but uh, this is a fantastic first issue. It establishes the world, and you know there's anthropomorphic mountains and... Uh, just, It's just such a fun, fun book with just fantastic visuals from Kyle uh, Stram. So I really, really encourage everybody. Go and pick it up. It's Twig from Scotty Young and Kyle Stram. It's just fantastic. Uh, all right. Let me give a rundown on some other books that are coming out today that you may want to be on the lookout for. Beyond the Breach, which uh, was Ed Brisson's uh, Aftershock series. The trade paperback of that is out this week, so look for that. I do recommend that. It's a very good story. From Boom, we have Once in Future number 25, which had some uh, extra covers. I guess, you know, 25 being sort of an anniversary issue. Uh, Magic number 14 is also out from writer uh, Jed McKay. It's also a very good series. From DC, and again, you can listen to the DC Spotlight. We did get that out this week. Uh, we talked about all these books, Batman number 123, Batman Beyond Neo Year number two. We have Batman Killing Time number three of six from Tom Taylor. We had uh, Flashpoint Beyond number one of six, getting that kicked off. Next to last issue of Hardware, season one, number five is out. Monkey Prince number four of 12, Nubia Coronation Special number one, uh, the end of One Star Squadron with number six. Suicide Squad also comes to an end with issue number 15. World of Krypton comes to an end with number 6 of 6. And then we had Task Force Z number 7. Meanwhile, over at Image, we have Deadly Class number 52. Firepower by Kirkman and Somnies up to issue number 20. Uh, We talked about Little Monsters. We talked about Metal Society. We talked about Radiant Black. And we talked about Twid. Uh, From Marvel Comics, in addition to the books I talked about, We have Black Panther Legends, number four. We had Marauders, number two. Spider-Man 2099, Exodus Alpha, number one, which I I tried to read that, but I was completely lost. I've never read any Spider-Man 2099, so I don't really have any context for that. Uh, Star Wars regular series is up to issue number 23, and that does it for Marvel. Let me see if there's anything else that I want to mention here. Uh, it looks like from Valiant, it's just that Archer and Armstrong Forever number one that I mentioned. Uh, but I will mention a final book from Vault Comics. I know a lot of people have been talking about it. If you're really into D&D, you might want to check it out. It's called Quests Aside number one, and that's from Vault. So uh, like I said, a lot of good books out this week. Hope you got a chance to check them out. Hope everybody got a chance to go check out a free comic book day. It's free comic book day as I'm recording this. So uh, I definitely hit up my shop and picked up a few cool books and we'll probably talk about them in the uh, DC Spotlight uh, or the next uh, New Comics Wednesday episode. So appreciate everybody listening as always. Hopefully we'll be able to get the episodes out on time next week. Do my best from uh, on the road. And that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Thanks for listening as always. And we'll talk to you next time.